KZSU Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. The show all about land use, politics, equity, and more. Today in the program, we have on two guests. Natasha Kagul, a uh, volunteer for the uh, Prop 15 campaign. And also, back on the show, Monica Mallon, very active in transit in the South Bay and beyond. And we're talking about some local races. We're talking about uh, a state senate race, but uses a launching pad to talk about uh, the controversy over Prop 22 and some uh, bigger ideas about politics, local, federal, and beyond. But without further ado, uh, let's uh, let's just get into things. So, uh, welcome, welcome Natasha, and welcome uh, back, Monica. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, thanks Mark. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, lot to talk about. I mean, we're we're recording this in the lead up to the election. A lot to talk about in this election. A lot of stuff happening. <laughs> but I think one thing we're kind of framing this around, uh, largely because it's connected to so many other things, is the uh, the state senate race uh, down in uh, the old uh, Jim Belseed. Well, I say old Jim Belseed. He's still there right now, but uh, he is uh, he's being termed out, and uh, there is two new contenders. Uh, it is Cortese and uh, and Ravel. Sorry, Ravel. I I, I, got, I got, keep on saying it wrong. I believe it's uh, Ravel. <laughs> I've been told. Uh, but yeah, so uh, it's a pretty controversial race. It's it goes into housing uh, stuff. It goes into uh, the very controversial labor stuff. Prop twenty two on the ballot. Uh, but I guess I'll I'll ask both of you because uh, you're both very very excited to talk about this. Uh, I guess I'll start with Natasha. Why don't you just introduce yourself a bit and tell you kind of why you care about this race so much. All right, thanks, Mark. So I'm Natasha Kagul. Um, I am a volunteer for the Yes on 15 campaign. I'm also a member of the SF Latina Giving Circle for the Latino Community Foundation based in San Francisco. Um, And for me, this race is really important because I think our state level representation is not something that we talk about as much in California, especially the assembly districts and the Senate districts. And the two candidates that we have are very different in their policy positions. And for me, it's important that whoever we send to the state Senate is representative of the priorities of Senate District 15 and is going to actually vote in a progressive manner and is not just using Democrat as a term to get themselves to that spot. Well, we're in in California. Everyone's a Democrat. It's it's kind of wild. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, later in the coast, but uh, yeah, so Monica, I mean, uh, so you are in uh, Jim Bell's district and, you know, have talked about in the past, uh, I I guess, you know, in a lot of, you know, you've approved a lot of uh, the kind of work Jim Bell's done in trans and other issues. I guess the question for you is kind of, you know, uh, what do you see as important as a seat? What has Jim Bell done well that, you know, perhaps you'd be concerned would be, be done work, you know, what, what, what do you think is the big, uh, the biggest concerns as far as the state Senate seat if, if uh, it was replaced in a negative way? Well, Jim Bell has just been such a strong leader in this area on the city council, on the board of supervisors, and then now in the state Senate, especially on housing and transportation for so many years. And he's really focused on revenue Um, you know, because he believes that that is really essential to solving a lot of these problems. And I completely agree with that, especially when it comes to transportation. And, you know, he's really someone that's willing to stick to his values. And he can be very blunt at times, uh, you know, and and he can work with one group one day and then disagree the next. 
So he is really someone that I really look up to, especially since we live very, very close uh, to each other. He's also from the Cambrian area. So, you know, and, and we kind of have similar stories of getting involved at a young age. And, you know, he's, he's someone that I really respect, talk to a lot. He really gives me good advice uh, on a lot of different issues. So, you know, when I, I realized that he was turned out, I started to get really concerned, you know, who's, who's going to be replacing him. And at first I, I had thought that it would be, you know, one Democrat and then a Republican or Johnny Camus who was running as no party preference. I didn't really expect it to be this, uh, you know, two Dems going head to head in the general which was really surprising. <laughs> so it's a, I it's thought a, it was... Yeah, the, the California jungle primary, you don't know what to expect. Uh, in Jerry Hill's seat, we got so many Democrats running that it is, in fact, one Dem and then one Republican. Uh, but yeah, it's it's unpredictable what you're gonna what you're gonna see in the fall. And uh, you know, in that case, yeah, one Denver's a Republican. It's pretty clear what's gonna happen uh, in these districts. But yeah, it's two Dems. What are you gonna get? Uh, I think a lot of people like who see nothing else and may have seen like, you know, I think the splashiest thing we see is uh, Anne Ravel has the Barack Obama endorsement, uh, which, you know, uh, and there's like a controversy recently that Cortese uh, was, uh, uh, you know, he had some sort of thing where he was with Obama. He was like, oh, are you trying to steal the clout of the Obama endorsement? And uh, I mean, I guess it's not like it's. Uh, illegal to be in a picture with somebody, uh, but uh, yeah, it's. I, mean, I guess it's the kind of wild thing. It's when you both Dems, like, what is the difference with the president of the United States chiming in? You know, and how much does does you know Barack Obama really know about, care about what's going on with local issues? Because uh, I guess what goes down that might be the only thing people see the Barack Obama <laughs> endorsement. It sounds very flashy, but I guess you look at on the issues. Uh, you know, you look at a few things. Uh, you know, SB fifty, Cortese says yes. Ravel says uh, says no. Uh, you look at Prop uh, twenty two, which uh, is the Uber uh, Lyft uh, labor bill. Uh, you know, almost you know, very hard. A uh, lot of people uh, going out against this of just saying it's you know an incredibly anti worker bill. Uh, Cortese is against it. R- Ravel says she's for it. And then Prop 15, which I feel is like the thing that everybody seems to agree that it's a very cut and dry case of, you know, uh, uh, getting value capture. Well, we have uh, Cortese saying yes, uh, not surprising, and Ravel saying no. And that just shocked me. You know, how does how does that happen? But I guess, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I guess we'll flip back to Natasha as far as kind of what do you think? What, what, what do you want to add about this endorsement? What it's meant, and kind of what? How do you think it's going to affect this race? Because it's not like everyone's so tapped into these local state senate races, right? Um, it's funny that the campaign would go as far to send a cease and desist letter to Dave Cortese, asking him to take down photos of himself on his own campaign website. It seems a little bit extreme to me. And with the Obama endorsement, I honestly don't know how much influence it's going to have at a local level. And he kind of just blanket endorses anyone who worked for him before. So Ann Ravel, former S- uh, FEC commissioner, yeah. for example. Um, and so I don't know necessarily that it's going to have a huge amount of influence, but the people who I do think are most vulnerable to being influenced by it are kind of her neighbors in Los Gatos, to be honest. That's where I'm from originally. And there's a lot of kind of virtual virtue signaling packed into that endorsement in a certain way like 
Obama is kind of a keystone for liberalism, progressivism for some folks. And so they might say, oh, she was endorsed by Obama. Clearly, she is the better choice without digging into the policy positions that she has, which, you know, came out during a live, you know, town hall discussion. Um, and so I hope it doesn't influence voters in that way. And I hope that they do take the time to dig into those things. Um, but I do worry that it's going to be kind of the checkbox for some folks, especially in those kind of secretly conservative, outwardly liberal areas of our district. Yeah, was Los Gatos, did it always, did it used to be a more conservative place voting wise? I would have guessed it would have been. So Los Gatos is the kind of place, and this is me speaking from my personal experience, having lived there since I was in the first grade and then graduating from high school there. Um, Los Gatos is the kind of place where in 2008, you saw yes on Prop 8 signs. Mm. And now in 2020, you see Black Lives Matter signs. There's definitely been a shift. There's definitely been a move. Um, but I think there's still some of those entrenched sort of NIMBY policies that people don't immediately think are racist or have racist implications, but they still believe and support because of you know, the benefits of Prop 13, I, you know, we've all been looking at that um, data visualization that shows us what people are paying in property taxes. And there's folks who are living in multi-million dollar homes paying $1,000 in property taxes because they've had that home for three generations. So Los Gatos is moving in the right direction. There was a Black Lives Matter protest where Black students and Black families in Los Gatos were given the stage and spoke to the rest of the community. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done on those more granular things that aren't immediately labeled racist, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it kind of also it reminds me of the overall you know, trajectory of the National Party. Chuck Schumer said, mm -hmm. we are trying to aim at turning the suburbs from being red to blue. And, you know, throughout the Bay Area, it might be one of the extreme cases. You have a lot of suburbs. Silicon Valley is one big suburb in a big <laughs> way. And, you know, these have turned, you know, pure blue in a lot of ways. But I guess the question is, what comes with that? What are the actual kind of policy decisions you have to come down on to really be blue uh, in, you know, in fact, and not just kind of branding? And I, I think we're seeing uh, it can be very easy to say, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm with the I'm with the blue team, blue wave, uh, but not actually seem to be very strong on uh, desegregating your cities, trying to have more fairness as far as you know, housing policy, as far as labor policy in this case. Uh, and, you know, it's and I, I guess that's a kind of, you know, it's not surprising that. I mean, maybe it's dismal. Maybe it should be surprising. I'm kind of nihilistic that, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, Ravel could come down against Prop 15 and then, uh, you know, for Prop 22. Uh, and I guess in comparison, uh, I, I know, uh, you know, so she's been kind of distant, too. Like, I, as far as she's, I guess she was on the faculty of Berkeley Law, if I remember right. Uh, and then she was in the FCC over over in the federal sense. But uh, Cortese has been, you know, working locally he's been both a county supervisor as well as serving as an mtc chair and you know monica uh definitely has a lot of experience uh following these so uh, just in general like what you know, what what was cortez been up to as far as these posts well i think he's really done a lot of things over the years but he's always really had a focus on education you know especially since he started out on the school board and then housing and transportation 
um, you know, he's really been interested in being on MTC and being on ABAG and, and VTA and these different bodies and looking into funding and trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, so he's, he, those are kind of his primary issues. But to me, I think the thing that really stands out is, you know, his, his constituent services and how his office interacts with people. They're, you know, by far the most responsive office that, you know, I've ever been in contact with and that I've ever worked with. You know, they respond really quickly. He responds to emails himself a lot of the time. And, you know, they can connect you with whatever resources you need for whatever issue you're having. Or, you know, if you do want to change some sort of policy or, or do, do anything like that, they'll be able to give you that information and you know, I mean, they're not just going to support whatever some random person asks them to support, but, you know, they give you the opportunities to prove yourself. And, you know, if, if, if he agrees with you, then you have a real chance of, of making things happen. And, you know, that's something that I've been able to do, you know, as, as a 20 something year old, uh, which has been really cool. You know, I've actually worked on real policies, you know, at the, the county level and regional level with him and, and with his staff, which is not something that normally happens when you're my age. Um, you know, so that's, that's always something that's really stuck out to me is just, you know, how, how he treats his constituents, how he treats members of the community, and especially how he treats young people. Um, you know, he just has a lot more respect for young people than a lot of other elected officials. Um, you know, like, when I first kind of started volunteering for him and, and getting involved, it was when he was running against Sam Licardo for mayor. And, you know, there's really a huge contrast with them in terms of constituent services. Well, and, what year was that? 2014. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Monica has been involved for, for being you know a, a young person. You, you like been involved was before high school or something. I mean, it's, it, I tried, how, how far away is 2014 from now? Uh, and how old are you? But, uh, it's, as far as like Natasha, like, you know, it's, I don't know if you're about the same age or not. You're in the same ballpark, I guess. It's like, yeah, well, what, I guess, what, what first, I, I'm just saying so many younger people are just getting more active now. I don't know if the internet has just been more oper- offering so many more gateways than people just may not realize how easy it is to get connected. But uh, I guess what, what were your first entries into kind of political activism in this? Yeah, thank you for the question. And I want to really quickly apologize for my dog, Zoe. She gets very excited whenever she hears anything. So I put her outside the room. She won't be bothering us I, anymore. I didn't hear a single yet. Um, so, yeah, that's. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Okay. Good for her. Um, but my real first entryway was, and this will shock very few people. Um, I went to UC Berkeley. I'm, I'm currently 24 and I graduated in 2018. Um, and so for me, it was finding those people who I aligned with understood. I did, you know, talk about things in high school. I certainly wasn't at Monica's level. Um, but I got involved after taking, um, now famous NIMBY Robert Reich's class, Wealth and Poverty. And I wrote my first paper on Prop 15 in 2018 um, when it was just schools and communities first, you know, collecting signatures for the ballot. And from there, I, you know, met the campaign and then I became, you know, part of the activism and I joined the Latino Community Foundation where I was able to connect with fellow Latino leaders, fellow Latino leaders um, who were passionate about these things and understood the impact that Prop 15, Prop 22, 
basically all of California governance was going to have on the Latino community here. Um, we are a very large and growing constituency, um, and we are the majority of the incoming class for the UC for the first time in history. So it was really important for me to figure out what mattered to me and realize kind of how my upbringing in Los Gatos in the Bay Area had influenced those perspectives. Yeah, and I guess, I guess that's kind of, it just reminds me when you talk about, you know, Robert Reich of just the night, like, the hardest thing to get over is housing in my mind. Housing is kind of the weirdest territory. Robert Reich, he will be, I think, you know, for the side of egalitarianism in all sorts of ways, but he still goes out and he nimbies, uh, you know, some uh, development in Berkeley. Uh, but, I mean, of course, he would still be very strongly for Prop 15, very strongly against uh, 22, but that's the difference between him and, and, and Ravel. It's kind of surprising just how out of step it is with even what I consider to be the kind of uh, disappointing, uh, you know, uh, conservative nimbyism in the area. She's a, a few steps beyond that, but I guess... We've been, I guess, you know, talking about this in abstract. Let's let's maybe get in the nuts and bolts of, of Prop 22 uh, because it's you know every, everyone's talking about it. Uh, you know, it was, but uh, I guess if either you want to kind of jump in with just kind of the overall overall idea of, of what Prop 22 is all about. <laughs> it's 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 such a big thing. It's hard to yeah. put into few words. But basically, Uber and Lyft wrote a proposition that would allow them to create this third status of employment that is not independent contractor specifically and it's not employer employee specifically but this like third bucket that they could put their drivers into that would allow them to pay them less than minimum wage to take away a lot of worker protections um and maintain for you know those who take it their level of service um it's been really frustrating to watch this campaign unfold but monica i don't know if you want to add anything to that description yeah i mean, i think just for me you know the biggest thing is just how much money they're spending on it and the fact that they've written into this that it can't be changed unless they get a seven eighths majority in the legislature it's just it's such a clear example of these companies you know trying to game the system and trying to use their money to take advantage of people that don't have a lot of resources you know, and, and it's really, you know, I mean, for them, it's probably life or death. Their business model is is based on exploiting workers. It's based on paying less than minimum wage. It's based on, you know, not not providing these protections and benefits. So, you know, they would probably go out of business if, if they were forced to make their drivers employees. So, you know, it is a really big deal for them, but it's also a really big deal for you know the people that are working for these companies and, and struggling to afford to live here and, and to get by and it's also a big deal for the climate these companies are terrible for the environment you know they take ridership away from transit so there's there's really a lot of implications for this yeah so as far as the money rolls go we have uh i guess five big five big donors we have uh, uber 50 million lyft 50 million doordash 50 million instacart 28 million and Postmates, uh, eleven million. Uh, yeah, and on top of it, I mean, it's it's interesting. I guess like some of the background, because uh, I was like kind of digging in. It's a little bit interesting uh, of just kind of how we got f f to here. I mean, it's 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 an economy wide thing. We're not seeing it only in like you know gig workers are kind of considered like a new thing that came up. 
But it's like shocking in so many other businesses, places where you used to see employees uh, have shifted to they have independent contractors. How does this matter in practice? There's all these different protections, minimum wage protections, overtime uh, benefits, unemployment tax uh, and unemployment benefits you get from it. So it's just a way to cheap out. And you know, a lot of places think, why not? Uh, and uh, then I guess even before AB5 is considered like kind of the turning point, but before that, it was actually a Supreme Court decision in California in 2018, Dynamex, uh, which said that uh, they will put in the ABC test. I don't know if, you know, it's if an employee is uh, if an employee is considered to be, uh, you know, an independent contractor, they must not have any oversight, no HR kind of protect like oversight, no kind of hiring or anything. Uh, it has to be outside their usual course of business and the worker has to be in that trade. So if you are, you know, a driver for Uber it's very hard to make the case that it is not in the business of Uber to be handling rides. That's in fact, the, that is the only thing they basically do. I, I, I will not say. I think some people said they've had to do uh, updates to AB5 with some new exemptions. Some people will want to get opted in out. And I'd say I think you probably make the case that you would always want to have the state, you know, Senate and Assembly make uh, amendments and kind of keep this fluid. Doing a constitutional amendment seems extremely dangerous, if nothing else. I don't know. This doesn't seem like the best way we can do to handle things here. Uh, but I've, I've been rambling for a while. Uh, I can see uh, <laughs> your thoughts of kind of just what you see is kind of, uh, I guess, the the details of this or kind of what you see is the danger of, of this process. So I think Prop 22 is a case study in the brokenness of the California proposition system. I mean, it's inherently flawed, but the fact that there are no contribution limits and it's just let Uber and Lyft take $185 million, pump it into a campaign. I mean, I don't know about you all, but I've been seeing at least like 10 Yes on 22 ads a day on TV, on the internet, on my phone. It's everywhere. I did the dumbest um, thing uh, the last week. I, uh, I on a Roku, they had like a snake game. And like I said, okay, why not? I play. I don't know why. Why I thought of that. So I downloaded the Snake game, and I've been trying to beat all the levels of Snake. Uh, it's like this real dumb app. Uh, but then it has like ads that play in, and the ads, like four in a row, was yes on twenty two. Like it's like it's just flowing into every. No matter how stupid the uh, the the place is, these ads are just everywhere. And and the funding allows that ubiquity. Like it, it's just everywhere and then it's also in the apps because people haven't stopped using uber lyft etc full stop in fact um people have been getting more delivery since the pandemic and so people are getting all these notifications directly to them and they're making these arguments that are based in nothing but what uber and lyft would do in retaliation for prop 22 it's nothing that they have to do it's what they would want to do to say you know what you all decided that we have to respect human rights we're gonna leave yeah, they say one of their arguments is like, okay, if this happens, AB5 even has happened, we don't have time to adjust. And like they have, they've known about this court ruling, you know, for over two years at this point. You know, they are choosing to kind of play this brinksmanship. Uh, but the, yeah, on top of it, it's just, you know, people are saying, oh, there's a choice. You know, you can, maybe we'll screw up the, the delicate ecosystem of, of gig workers, or we can make sure that we have this yes on 22. It does. I mean, it just doesn't seem that most people know about or care how clumsy constitutional amendments are to deal with all this stuff. 
and uh, I, I don't know. It's 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 a lot of people being kind of like put on the line as far as it's an indictment on are you for the ride shares or against it. I mean, I'll say personally, I've never paid for a ride share, never planned to. I kind of dislike the entire thing, but I understand not everyone agrees with that, but uh, I, I don't think it should be a referendum. A uh, mad Mudlikens drunk driving, I think a very disappointing endorsement this week uh, because uh, they say that, uh, yeah, it's like they want to have more people, I guess, more ubiquity of gig workers. They say, oh, look, therefore, it's it's a dichotomy, yes or no, and they, they want yes in 22. And I, I guess it's interesting to me that, you know, mad, they could be doing all sorts of things to improve transit. They could fight minimum parking. So let's unpack that Absolutely. endorsement really quick. First of all, Uber and mad have been partners since 2018. Matt is also partnered with the famously progressive National Football League. So that's who they're partnering with. Hmm. On their board of directors is almost exclusively police officers, personal injury lawyers, and the head of Uber's self-driving car initiative. There's also inconsistent evidence that rideshare reduces the level of drunk driving in cities, which you know what does reduce the level of drunk driving in cities? Transit. Um, Uber has actually increased traffic deaths, it's increased pollution, it's increased all of these other things that you would think Mothers Against Drunk Driving is against, but based on their board leadership, they probably have a different approach to this problem than we would want them to. Yeah, money corrupts, and I think big orgs, big famous orgs, they're all usually pretty disappointing, and I don't, I don't think there's any exception. I mean, as far as in the transit world, have you, uh, Monica, have you ever known them to be a, a good ally in anything or do, do they fight for me? <laughs> I mean, not that I've noticed really, you know, they haven't really, I mean, you know, in the South Valley, it's like, there's not really that many big players in transit. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the business community, it's labor and, you know, the riders and advocates. So they haven't really been involved, but, you know, we used to have, multiple bus lines in this county that ran 24 hours a day yeah now we don't have any you know these are problems that can be solved with money but you know the difference between transit agencies and uber and lyft is that transit agencies actually have to pay a reasonable wage and you know provide benefits and stability and all of that um you know which is more expensive but it's it's just also more more ethical <laughs> You don't see like the move fast and break things work out for public transit agencies. They don't have that luxury of of, of doing that. And I mean, you were talking about earlier the fact that like in the Uber and Lyft model is to squeeze workers. I'd say even more than that, their model is to burn stacks of money that they get from you know VC funding and attempt to keep the lights on and become ubiquitous long enough that we're stuck with them no matter what. And really, they're hoping three or four years down the road to completely automate their service. I mean, Uber has been in different agencies uh, or different different areas trying to roll out self-driving cars. They've had, you know, I'd say of the field, they've done the worst job. They've had self-driving cars that have you know just ran through red lights. They had a self-driving car in Arizona that killed a pedestrian. Uh, but they're, you know, all they need is to have approval and i think this prop 22 shows a very uh scary thing which is 
who is going to approve or disapprove something if they can just buy a constitutional amendment? You know, that that's really the gold in this new economy. Is can you get approval of your software platform? And uh, it's, I don't know. I find that very concerning. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I mean, to, to get back into the you know, weeds as far as kind of, uh, you know, we, we, uh, Monica and I were talking you know, a f- few months ago at this point. This was kind of earlier in the pandemic response of the transit agencies and you know uh it was tough then but they had lifelines money has dried up uh in certain ways and dc is kind of failing at, at getting things moving uh and I, I guess you know just kind of maybe uh you know sideline as far as just kind of what what you see is the kind of state of just keeping things going and what you see is kind of uh the necessary fights this election and beyond on, on transit well i think that prop 22 is really big you know i think if it if it fails and if uber and lyft actually do leave the state there's going to be a lot more political will to set up some sort of revenue source for transit operations which is really what we've needed for a long time yeah Uh, you know there's just there's just not enough money for operations we we have these issues where we get all this grant funding from the state and federal government to build all these rail lines and to buy buses and trains but then you know we build these things and we can't operate them you know, in, in San Jose, they're extending the light rail from Alum Rock to Eastridge, and they have no money to operate that extension, but they have all the money to build the thing. So, you know, this has really been a long-standing issue. Um, so, you know, I'm personally really excited to be involved with the next regional measure process and advocating for more funding for operations there. But in the near term, I really think that people need to be pursuing things like bonding and front-loading operations money um, at their local agencies. And that's that's something that we're doing at BTA, made a lot of progress on it, and we're getting internal analysis for that and have a lot of support on the board. But, you know, I really felt like a lot of people in other counties and, and working with other transit agencies have really just kind of been sitting and, and waiting for, you know, a silver bullet or something to fall out of the sky, um, which is really not the right approach. Our, our transit agencies are, are about to cut service by 30 to 40% in a lot of these agencies, and we need to take whatever whatever risk it is. You know, it's it needs to happen before people get laid off and the service is gone. Yeah, and I guess what one, one small thing that kind of, you know, pops out is it's, I think, you know, as far as making transit work, there are, you know, carrots and sticks. There are kind of, you know, lifelines. But there's also kind of other things that, that will push it from the other end. Like as far as, you know, Prop 15 is, is you know, a measure that is going to infuse a lot of money. But when you say that voting, like, against <laughs> Uber and Lyft and hoping they kind of dry up if they are unsustainable would be a good thing in itself, it's, I mean, it is true that I think you really depend upon people who use transit, rely on transit, and that builds up cycles of very healthy systems. And I, I mean, as someone who almost on principle doesn't use rideshare, I find it very disappointing that you, you, you know, throw a rock at anyone in their 20s and 30s. Chances are they have been using a ton of subsidized ride services over the last 10 years. And this has been kind of magically cheap subsidized rides and they that money that that yeah and, and that people power could have been going into transit instead and that's really disappointing to me that 
I mean, I'd like to see if there's ways to like make sure that we can't have someone uh, try to basically attack transit in a certain way with lost leader type tactics uh, until they drive us out of business uh, because it's not sustainable and it's really hard for us in the in the long term. Uh, other sorts of sticks would be, of course, attacking car culture itself. And it's worth saying that like the rideshare culture, it's very compatible with the kind of car culture you see everywhere. It's like, oh, yeah, mostly cars. But if people need a little bit of a help to get from A to B, we'll have the ride shares. But uh, I don't know. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty bad stuff. Yeah. And you would think that the number one way to reduce drunk driving is to take away cars so that people don't have to drive. Yeah, take but... away parking lots. Why are there parking lots next to bars? You know, why does... Why... Just a thought. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's... In, I mean, I would say minimum parking laws are the unsexiest but incredibly effective thing to attack. And like, why aren't these people mm-hmm. attacking that? I would say they don't care. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of this just comes down to political will and just where the advocates are at, you know, at, at least from what I've observed in the Bay Area. Advocates have made a lot of mistakes. They've really overplayed their hand, their hands, you know, they've been really purist and saying, oh, we only want a corporate tax. We only want this. Everything has to be 100% perfect or else we're not even, we're not going to support it. Like, here in this county, advocates have fought against revenue measures, and they even killed one once, because you know they're they're just so such purists about everything. But <laughs> and I noticed know. the purists too. They're not the people doing the work. As far as this cycle goes, we've seen people attack Measure RR, which is kind of the stopgap. Well, I mean, not really, I mean, it's actually going to create a permanent revenue source for Caltrain. Uh, but you know, it's not the ideal revenue source. It's a sales tax. But uh, people say, okay, this is not good, and they're opposing it. Whereas, you know, you with Voices for Public Transportation uh, have, like, actually been part of a longer-term system for progressive funding. And these people who are, you know, tisking it, I I haven't seen them in the meetings. I haven't seen them being allies in any real way. Like, I would say that's kind of if you're going to say no to something, I think they should be doing the work. <laughs> and and they're not. I don't know. Yeah, they just they really haven't been putting in the work. They just like to complain, and they don't realize that you know it really takes building a strong coalition. You know, it takes spending money to pay staff. You know, doing the research, getting support from elected officials. It's really hard to go from you know basically having pretty much everything based on sales tax since the beginning to something different. Yeah, that takes a lot of work. And, you know, at the same time, they're just not interested in any, any sort of monetization, which is a really good, you know, short-term revenue option for a lot of these transit agencies. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, they think that some of these rail extensions are too expensive. and We've invested too much in highways. And I completely agree with those points. But you need to do some political analysis here. And... <laughs> you know, count your votes and and figure out who's going to be on your side before you kill opportunities to generate new revenue. You know, it's like I was kind of lucky in the sense that when I came in, everybody had kind of given up and I just had a clean slate and was able to kind of build build, build things up from nothing. And, you know, really, like, especially since, you know, my base is, is very young, you know, teaching young people that Revenue is a good thing, you know, we need to sit at the table with these people and with these elected officials and, and other groups and 
and compromise and always be at the table no matter what and get the best that we can. Um, you know, so I, I've just really taken a different approach to things that has been, you know, like I've generated more revenue for transit than other advocates have <laughs> in the past 20 years, you know, yeah. and these weren't even my ideas. I was, I've supported things that elected officials came up with. So, you know, it's just picking up on what elected officials say a lot of the times in these meetings instead of just sitting there, you know, just being so grouchy, like these people are so terrible, this agency is so mismanaged. You can find these little hints in what they're saying to get a sense for what they support. You know, they're not going to go out and, and say what their full and complete plan is. But if you can get a sense of, of where they're at and then meet with them and follow up and, you know, talk to the other elected officials, you can get some of these things done. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think some people, I'd say, you know, people might complain that people are too moderate, they compromise too much. But you see this, the opposite. If, if people are only going to go in on a game of chicken and never, you know, never turn the steering wheel like it's you need to find out what your ideal compromise is and hit your spots. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's that's just obvious politics, but it's it's hard to kind of make that sexy because it's not sexy. It's very it's it's disappointing. But, you know, it's life is disappointing uh, as, far, as far as like kind of abdicating the kind of, uh, you know, the the political will of, of doing something about it. I, I One thing has been very weird to follow in the last couple of weeks in MTC is they've been pushing for uh, this this I don't know if, I don't it's a non-binding resolution I don't know what this is but it's they're saying that they want to see sixty percent of people work from home not just during the crisis but permanently they want to see sixty percent of people work from home in perpetuity uh, they're not saying not just dr not drive cars they're saying just in general like w across the board no don't walk to work don't take transit to work just work from home in a lot of ways they're just kind of saying we need to do less car travel and of course transit's not an option we can never make it work and in a lot of ways it just feels like they're absolutely surrendering in the entire mission of administering public transit i, I don't know is that, that's at least my impression of what's going on is is that, is that right or wrong or what, what, what yeah what's... i mean that's so i'm not going to say who these people are that came up with it because you know i work with them on other things and they're going to get mad about it but the people that came up with this idea are actually some of the biggest transit champions in Santa Clara County and some of the biggest champions for progressive revenue for transit in Santa Clara County. But, you know, since the advocacy here hasn't been very strong and they felt like they haven't been supported by, you know, the big interest groups, the big nonprofits, they felt like this was the only way to solve the climate crisis, which is something that they were all very concerned about. So they kind of felt like, you know, we support transit, we believe in transit, but we have no idea how to get to where we need to go with transit because there's just not enough support from the community that we're just going to do this instead, which is a terrible thing to do. And I should have, like, I didn't think, I found out about this in the very early stages of it happening when they were first getting started with it. And I didn't take it seriously and I didn't think it would actually become a thing but then it did so does it does it matter or is it just kind of weird is it like a weird vision document i don't know like does what does this mean in practice 
I, I don't really think that they would really be able to enforce it. Like, how do they know <laughs> I, what I'm doing? NBC can't, <laughs> yeah. can't go to businesses or go to people's houses and say, no, you stay at home. Uh, right. But, like, I don't... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think it's just kind of them setting a vision for more people to be working at home and, and that that's kind of the culture that, that we're going to have in the future. Which I would say, like, if they want to say... I'd say if they want to be more specific and precise, saying we need to get vehicle miles down, we need to get commuting down, I'd say 100%. But it's extremely revealing that they you know, take it as the same thing between vehicle miles down and going to work, because obviously transit's not an option. And I'd say you, I, yeah. I, I, you could actually have as many people go to work and go by transit, and that should be, I think, a vision they could should sign on to, because it involves, like... I mean, they're almost saying that kind of cities are dead. That's the only way we're giving up. You know, people should just live in, you know, Denver or, you know, the Sun Belt or whatever. It's like, because obviously we can't make this work here. And I, I don't know. We got to, I think we got to dream bigger than that. It also hands an interestingly large win to tech companies who are able to say that they had a certain amount of environmental impact and that 60% of their employees are staying home. It also displaces the responsibility of becoming work from home onto those employees when, I'm sorry, if you talk to any parent, any couple, anyone really, the pandemic has been challenging. Working from home is not great for everybody. Um, And it's just really unfortunate that that has kind of been handed off to these companies and to the employees to take care of when, like you said, we can invest in transit and that would help. Yeah, it's, it's anti-worker to say, hey, every worker, you know, stay at home, build your own office, you know, if you can work from that. And then on top of it, it kind of, if it helps anyone at all, it helps the professional set who can work from home. And I mean, the economy is miserable for like everyone who has been like part of the like usually contractors working in like you know the you know office work you know janitorial work and all that like those are those jobs just going to disappear because it's it's been a bad time for all sorts of people and and i think it kind of reveals the priorities of just saying it's like oh of course you know the bay area economy is built upon the professional tech workers and that's the only people we really want to consider happening because i think for a really vibrant necessary city economy people have to move around and I don't, I mean, I, I've, I've made these complaints so often, like Palo Alto and other places, they want their service workers to come in, they want to make sure they accommodate them in the easiest way, but they don't want to do any sacrifices to make it happen. They don't want to pay more, they don't want to change their land use, they don't want to, you know, it's, I, I it's, they just want to feel like they're doing something without actually doing anything, anything reasonable. I mean, if you go to Soma in San Francisco and you look at any of the restaurants there, it's they're they're all gone. Like those are places that people used to eat lunch every day. And like you said, like the janitorial workers, everyone else who doesn't have the option to work from home. How do they factor into that calculation? And why are we only focusing on those areas in which people can work from home? And that used to be the big thing people said. It's like, oh, you support the tech jobs because for every tech job you get, you get seven other workers, you know, on the, you know, helping out as part of this great ecosystem. And now they're kind of saying, well, wait, you know, that's a problem. <laughs> like, let's let's go back to having some tech workers. And they kind of want to say, like, oh, they should be here sometimes enough that they're kind of stuck here. We can use our tax revenue. We can kind of make sure real estate stays expensive. Because uh, I don't know. I think when you open this, you know, the Pandora's box of working from home. 
they're I mean, I think they're not going to live in Silicon Valley. They're going to, if they can, if, if you create this ecosystem, they will live in suburban Phoenix. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I just don't, I don't, they want all the good, none of the bad. And I just think it's, it's unrealistic and, and, and pretty gross in a lot of ways. Uh, let's talk more about, uh, you know, other things. We, we talked about Prop 22, Prop 15, um, you know, SB 50 is another thing Ravel, uh, uh, Went, came down against. Well, one other thing I noticed is, like she said, like, oh, for raising money for affordable housing, she wants to sell off city land. That's, like, her number one thing that comes to mind. So just across the board, we're some really, really bad uh, really bad outcomes here. Uh, but, uh, no, no, I mean, okay, so but, you know, what else, what else comes to mind as far as, you know, this race that I haven't talked about so far? I think experience is a really big part of this mm-hmm. because Ravel – you know, acts like she knows everything about all these different things, but she's never actually held elected office before. Yeah. You know, she she hasn't even been on a school board. So it's for nice me, that these people least. are like they're working locally. You've worked with them locally and they kind of bubble up to the system. It's very different than this FEC person who comes back to the, the area. Yeah, you know, I just, I don't know how she would interact with, you know, other state senators and and assembly members, how she would interact with other groups, you know, and and what she would do. I mean, even, you know, Alex Lee has worked for state senators and state assembly members, you know, even though he's never held elected office, at least he has that experience, you know, working behind the scenes and doing that constituent outreach, which I think is a really important part of all this you know nobody ever really does the things that they plan to do and that they have in their platforms what's really important to me is that you know you're actually listening to people getting feedback you know and and really creating a system where you know you're 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 getting advocates in the local community to actually step up and help and be engaged because you know, neither of these people can do anything, you know, without without advocates on the ground. And, you know, I, I think I think Raul just doesn't have those relationships. And she just has a really negative tone about things. And it's kind of like, this is mismanaged. This is bad. We're doing this wrong. You know, that's not something that's, you know, I think it's important to be honest with your constituents and, and be honest with young people especially but you know for me at least like elected officials including Dave Cortezzi believing in me and you know encouraging me to participate and work with them on things is the reason that I still do this you know you get disappointed a lot but you need those people that inspire leadership and make it possible for regular people to actually create change there's going to be interest groups involved no matter what but I think that if you really want to do good things, you, you have to have regular people engaged in these processes. Yeah, I just, if we wanted to tie it back to the beginning of this conversation, Ann Ravel's never worked locally. And so she's leaning on national endorsements to promote herself with like the Obama campaign and with all of the things that we've seen her do so far. She hasn't really been making the argument on behalf of SD15. It's been hey, I did these great things at the national level. You should vote for me. Obama endorsed me. And so I'm really excited by Dave's campaign. Um, I'm really anxious to see what happens um, during this election. Um, But I agree. It's that relationship building that I don't think 
she's taken the time to do. I, I mean, I don't want to be like, it's a little bit pie in the sky, but there is something really deeply broken. The fact that California is becoming a single party state in a lot of ways, but we don't have any differentiation or any kind of parties operating the way they should. I mean, I was dismayed uh, last time around for the state Senate, uh, state Senate the, the, the National Senate, that we had uh, the person who bubbled up through the system, Kevin DeLeon, endorsed by mm-hmm. the official you know, California Democratic Party, but because of federal politics and just kind of what is the culture war that kind of gets in everyone's heads, Diane Feinstein, very famous name, defeated him. And that really shouldn't happen because he was the guy who actually had relationships and worked through the entire system and he was approved. And I mean, that sounds a bit like uh, the smoky back rooms are better than (laughs) than the uh, election. But I kind of think it's true when you have all this nonsense and you have, you know, it's, you know, what is the what is direct democracy here? It's the ads for Prop 22. Uh, It is, you know, kind of the endorsement of Obama. And I'd say that's a lot less meaningful to me than the relationships at the party level from every level of government. And to me, that seems like a lot more functional. I, I don't know. I know that mm-hmm. sounds anti-democratic in some ways, but I think I, I think there's a lot of issues with, I think, loud and stupid politics, which I worry you get too much of that. I don't know. Well, the Oval Office would, you know, <laughs> like to say that stupid and loud has been successful in certain ways. Um, but I think this is also part of, you know, the problem with the top two system um, where yeah i mean like you have someone who's further left than the other and the person who is less far left is able to capture people to the right and that's that's part of the problem is you know you lean on things like name recognition and those smoky back rooms like you said where every like everyone in california for the most part at this point knows the name diet feinstein kevin DeLeon is a less familiar figure and so if you're in a voting booth you're a low information voter you see two names, you recognize one, and they both say Democratic, and one is presumably a woman based on, you know, the names that you're seeing, you're probably going to pick the one, and it might say incumbent on certain people's ballots. Mm. There are certain little signals that people use to make those decisions that aren't necessarily indicative of the political stance of a given candidate. Um, But in a big state like California, it's hard to reach all i think it's how many million of us at this point like 30 it's a lot <laughs> it's, it's a lot <laughs> yeah but yeah you know, and i gotta say like it i mean uh you can look back and there used to be other institutions that drove out voters you look at unions unions used to kind of say that you know when your union kind of sided with a guy it's that was a very strong signal that like oh yeah this endorsement means a lot but like right now we kind of just have like people feel like they have a personal relationship to Obama because, like, he's this big national figure. He's all, all of our friend. He's our uncle. But, like, I don't know. Like, I think it's it's an unfortunate, you know, indictment in the fact that we don't have strong institutions that let people know we need this person because they will actually affect my life in a real way. And it's important to me that, that this works. I think a bunch of weirdos, uh, you know, who spend their time in activism and working orgs say, oh, my org works for this person. It's very important that, you know, that, that the better person happens because a lot of things will happen as a result. But most people, they don't really know or care. They're very divorced from politics. It feels, it feels very foreign to everyone's day-to-day experience. And that's, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, 
I mean, I, I, I'm encouraged by the fact we get more and more young people who actually do spend more of their time actually in activism. And I, I don't know if I'm just if I'm seeing more of these people, but I feel it's a real trend that it's really more people who are young actually are, I think, forming new institutions just th- through being active themselves. I mean, do you think you're just outliers? Do you think that's a real trend? I think Monica's the best example of that. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's I've really seen a lot more young people get involved. I started getting involved in this kind of stuff when I was like 10 years old or something, and I'm, I'm 23 now, um, you know, and for a really long time, I was always the youngest person at everything, you know, even when I was 19 or 20. But, you know, that, that hasn't been the case as much over the past, you know, year or so. I think, you know, young people have found some elected officials, you know, other young leaders that they look up to and that inspire them, and they've really started to get more engaged. I think in the case of the city of San Jose, it's kind of just hatred for, for a lot of, for the mayor and a lot of council members that's been uh, getting people involved. But I think, you know, at least with uh, the county and with VTA, you know, there have been strong leaders on those bodies that, that have really inspired young people and that have really, mm-hmm. you know, shown them support and, and done small things, you know, like something symbolic, like the climate emergencies that both of those bodies declared really got a lot of young people activated and engaged. And, you know, in both of those cases, they actually led to things being changed. You know, it's, Sometimes it just takes a really small symbolic thing to start to get the ball rolling because if the morale is low, it's it's really, really hard. You know, before that climate emergency declaration happened, you know, it was really hard for me to turn people out to these meetings, hmm. even people that were directly impacted by these things, you know, like their bus was about to get cut, but they just did not have any faith in anything changing that they would not show up to these meetings so things are really really bad but you know by building relationships with some of these elected officials we've really been able to show young people that they can have a voice and that they can make a difference and now in some of these cases these meetings are predominantly young people mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and young people you know really have a voice and are respected by elected officials. You know, it's it's just been really, really incredible to watch. You know, when I first started doing these sorts of things, nobody took me seriously. But now, you know, I see 14 and 15 year olds, you know, I get to sit in meetings with them and elected officials and the elected officials are listening to them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I think, yeah, it's being able to coordinate people. I mean, I think there's, it's, it, it's, it's a big change, I think. Young people, in a lot of ways, the actual interests they have have changed. You have like boomers and Gen X people. Like life was kind of functional in a lot of sense. I think millennials was a big turning point in that people kind of expected something, got less than they expected. But you're going to Gen Z territory, and a lot of people really feel like, boy, they're just getting, you know, robbed you know, of like the entire social contract. And then on top of it, it's like, okay, well, feeling you know, miffed, feeling like you're in a bad spot, that isn't enough. You actually need to have that critical political mass. And it can be like simply one person coordinating stuff can really change the the balance in an incredibly, uh, you know, 
almost sudden way. But uh, yeah, I've seen Natasha's about to, you know, wants to say something. So yeah, I mean, I, I really want Monica to give herself credit here because the only reason I'm talking to you two, the only reason I've showed up to a VTA meeting period is because she writes very comprehensive, easy to do steps of how to actually show up to these things, because that's not something we're taught in schools. That's not something that your teacher is like, hey, if you want to go to your local transit authorities meeting, make sure that you mention you live here, you use this, and you believe X, Y, Z thing. Um, the portability of activism, I think, has been really wonderful to see. And you see things like the Sunrise Movement. You know, it's national, it's huge now, and that was started by youth, and it's still run by youth. Like, I um, joined Sunrise Silicon Valley, and I met with their leader uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think she's still in college. And it's just, it's really wonderful to see that folks who are often most impacted by the worst consequences of the decisions made in like the tax revolt and everything that's happened in the past 50 years are saying, you know what, I don't want this. This is not going to work for me and I'm going to say something about it. And it's it's been wonderful to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you mentioned, oh, I just like, came to mind, you mentioned the Prop uh, 13 map. I don't know if I have the URL offhand, but yeah, it's that's one more thing too of just people being so connected that someone can just go out there, scrape all this data, and now you have something that kind of fires up the blood of just how screwed up right. the entire underlying system is all around us. Uh, yeah, I don't know. People have a lot more power to, I think, uh, connect one to one and be able to, you know, both uh, coordinate as well as just kind of communicate. I think complicated ideas. I just want to say that if you want to find that map, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, you can go to at iwebst, I-W-E-B-S-T on Twitter. That's Ian Webster's handle. He's the one who created it. Nice. Huge shout out. Um, I've been spending way too much time on that, sending screenshots to my friends and my family being like, this is crazy. Um, but it, yeah, like you said, that sort of data visualization really helps us go, wow that has really severe downstream consequences that, you know, Prop 15 is trying to fix. So vote yes on Prop 15. Um, and I'm really, you know, all of the resources that we get to see, get to use, get to share, have changed the conversation in a lot of ways. And I know that social media gets a bad rap, but I've learned a lot from being on Twitter, being on Instagram, not so much on Facebook. Um, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's been an important resource for not just me, but for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we've been talking for about an hour. I think it's, you know, probably about time to, you know, kind of wrap up. But just, I guess, other thoughts. I mean, it's kind of crunch time before the election happening. We talked about a lot that's been top of mind, but I think we have a lot, probably other, you know, uh, ping pong balls bouncing around our heads. Uh, any other other random mm -hmm. thoughts that each of us are having as far as the election coming up? Uh, I guess uh, start, with, start with Monica. Well, I think everyone should obviously vote. I think that's a very obvious thing to do, but... To me, what happens and what you decide to do after is almost more important. I've been volunteering for candidates since I was in high school. And a lot of the times I just voted for people and volunteered and I didn't do any follow-up. And I was really disappointed. But you know, during the last election cycle, I actually did that follow-up and did that advocacy and I've finally been able to start to see change. So you know, this doesn't end on election night. If you really want to change things, get organized in your community, find people that are already doing this work, and, and put pressure on these people to actually do what you want them to do. I mean, you're putting them in office, or even if you don't, even if the person that you don't like wins. 
you know, they're still there to represent you and you need to hold them accountable to that. Yeah, it's, it's shocking how many people waste their time uh, tweeting at uh, the president when the fact is, if you put a fraction of energy doing anything in your local like area, you can you can really meet a lot of people and understand how things work and have like some real influence. And like, you know, you can be kind of a, a you can be a real hub between you and all of like your friends and family and associates to say, like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I know people who know people who know people who are doing things. And I don't know. That's that's pretty cool. It makes a big difference. And it's not that hard to yeah. get that yeah. get that started. I mean, I guess for young people, what I would say is join a neighborhood association. It's going to be painful. There's going to be a lot of NIMBYs, but you really do. It is really helpful to have older people that are looking out for you and that can protect you when things happen and that can give you advice. Um, you know, that's that's something that really helped me when I was younger. And, you know, just, just network, go to party meetings, you know, go to a meeting every night. <laughs> you, you have the energy for that. Um, you know, it's everything's about relationships. Everything's about building trust in the community and, you know, just getting, getting people on the same page. Yeah. You know, it, if you're willing to put in the effort, you know, you're going to get somewhere eventually. <laughs> yeah. I always like, I always thought networking for, you know, jobs and everything was always so gross and demoralizing, mm-hmm. but networking for kind of understanding what's going on in your community is I think a lot more interesting and also just a lot less gross. So <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah. I, I recommend one highly and the other, you know, still feels very awful. But uh, uh, Natasha, what's on your mind as far as the election coming up? Yeah, just selling yourself when you're trying to network professionally feels like the grimiest thing that oh, you can do. But so I bad. do highly, highly recommend getting to know people who care about the same things as you do. Because when you're networking politically, it's about how do we get where we want to go together. Um, and something that I would encourage everybody to do, something that I found is really effective um, in my circles, at least, is talk to the people who you know about this race. If you are in SD15, if you know somebody who lives in SD15, um, if you know somebody who maybe is on the fence about Prop 22, I've convinced a lot of people not to vote for Prop 22 by just constantly explaining to them how it is bad. Talk to people about the things that you care about and you're going to change some hearts and minds, especially if you're coming from a place of care like that. Um, And then like Monica said, hold your electeds accountable after you elect them. They did not earn just to sit in their seat for two, six, four years. Um, They are earning your vote every single day and they are earning your trust every single day. So it is their responsibility to listen to you, to implement the things that you ask them for. Make sure that you show up and you show them that you're not going anywhere just because they won their election. Well, very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for, for being here and uh, explaining what's going on with this race and more. And uh, yeah, just talking about some more of the kind of uh, the big ideas going on here. So uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks one more time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mark. We have been hearing from Natasha Gould as well as Monica Malland all about local transit, local state senate races, and much more. You can hear this episode and all previous episodes of the podcast at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Ashu, Stanford. <laughs>